Hey everybody, you're listening to the High Sessions Hawaii podcast where we talk about everything local and beyond. I'm John Yamasaki, your host, and joining me today is Mr. Kyle Shimabukuro. How's it? Mr. Devin Nakoba and Mr. Kuike Kamakeoelo. Almost, but how's it, guys? <laughs> oh, what did I get wrong? Oh, hello. Oh, hello. Like, oh, hello. Sorry. You know when my, you introduce yourself? My fat tongue got in the way of my oh, oh hello. I, I, I kind of, I meant to say that, but uh, <laughs> came out wrong. All right, okay. Uh, before we begin, let me remind our listeners of the ways they can stay in touch with the show. You can go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and look up uh, High Session stuff. You can also go to SoundCloud, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts, listen to the podcast. You can email us at highsessions at yahoo.com. Um, if you'd like to help the show get more music on the channel, you can go to patreon.com and donate. There you will be more involved with the show and help determine who and what is filmed. This week, we'd like to give a big shout out to Gooch. Yeah. Gooch came in with a pretty uh, interest—I uh, should say, interesting, nice donation. Oh, okay. And thank uh, you. So thank you, Gooch, and uh, thanks, Gooch. Uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, so about a Gooch. <laughs> our sponsor, Kupu Kupu Landscaping, Landscape Architects, provided us with these brought, uh, ferns back here, which well, are still alive. Which are still alive. Kyle has been doing a good job keeping them alive. Thank you, Kyle. Every day I water. <laughs> <laughs> You can go to kupukupulandscaping.com for a free estimate or um, or contact us and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll direct you. Yeah. Find Devin, Kupu yes. 94.7 in the mornings. Mm-hmm. You can find Kyle at highlife808.com. And um, that's, I think, all I have for our general announcements. Yes. Oh, next week, next week we're going to be starting to release music from Andrew Molina. Wow. Oh who's okay. a ukulele player so that's going to be kind of exciting for new music because we've been doing pure heart for the last three weeks i think people are kind of sick of that <laughs> so um yeah that'll be exciting okay okay so when you, you wait, want wait, me so when you guys release you, you guys spoon feed then one performance a day yeah uh it's, it's three a week so we do yeah every other day yeah, every other day okay kind of thing, monday wow. wednesday friday oh. yeah okay. and um most <laughs> the, the pure heart one was a little bit different because that performance was for a charity event so we had more content than we normally would have so it was like a couple of weeks of stuff oh. versus a normal audience is one week worth of uh of stuff but every artist there is one song so they do four songs three songs released on the youtube channel one song is saved for the patron oh. so if you're a patron okay. you get a fourth song that you would not see if you are not a patron now can Smart. you download that song on patreon you can uh, oh no but uh the performances and when we have music enter uh musicians come in and we do music uh performances and stuff uh those are available for download off the patreon so all those like impromptu things if you wanted to download them you can okay yeah um do you need me to do the introduction yes i had something else your friend because okay so everybody you know how this normally works right john does the introductions and all of that stuff but this time around i wanted to surprise them with someone which is giving john hives right now uh but it's because my anxiety is like the gentleman the gentleman that i'm uh, that we have here today kuike we actually met on uh clubhouse which is a social media app uh it's actually how we met reed shimabukuro who is also here yep um But Kuike had uh, an unusual story for me, which is something that I wanted to bring here, only because Kuike is kind of the, he's, he's going to not really want to say it's true, but he is. He's, he's sort of a renaissance man because he not only does farming, he does farming, uh, you know, he's a originally a Wamanalo boy, but he kind of commutes back and forth to Maui uh, doing 
doing farmer stuff and specifically uh, Korean uh, Korean based farming which is oh, which is a science based to so basically we sat here on clubhouse together and i kind of tried getting the story of his life and as more and more stuff is like an onion the more stuff he revealed the more i went we gotta get this guy on the podcast because there's so much that he can speak about and what was really cool for me is that his his understanding of both hawaiian culture uh, but also about how that hawaiian culture uh, can feed the people here who live here was fascinating for me. And I know that, you know, we as a podcast have always kind of talked about that. Uh, it's something that we are um, uh, we're keenly aware of. And so for me, it was important to have Kuike here because he can speak to that in a way that we cannot because we don't live it. Like, you two like to go fishing, but this man is working to try to feed as many people as possible off the land that we already have, which I think is, a, is a, um, an admirable thing. Um, so that's why I never give them anything because it was all up here and I just needed to shoot it out. So, Kuike, thank you very much for being here with us today. Um, I, I know it must be a little uncomfortable to hear somebody go, this guy's awesome, but he really is. I mean, uh, uh, I, I also am impressed by the fact that you do it all from a very humble place. It's not, you know, you don't, you don't, he doesn't humble brag. He doesn't say, or oh, look at all the wonderful things I've done. He just says, hey, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to move things forward. We're trying to make it so that my kids, he has five of them, one more on the way. But, you know, he wants to make it so that his kids, our kids can live here and live, work, eat, all of that stuff, all off of what we have here in the island. So, sorry, Kuike, that was a very long introduction. <laughs> but um, uh. just wanted to get into uh, real quickly, like what got you interested in this type of farming and subsistence farming specifically okay um one olino lino o kaohao anapaliku o makapuu kaloha kaina yakako pakahe apao and devin and the crew john kyle i just want to express very humbly i'm very honored to be here and fucking devin you're gonna make me cry <laughs> you're gonna make me cry why is because as you're saying all of these things I, I know without a doubt that it is only because of my parents and their parents that, you know, um, we barely know each other. We just met, you know, and from our exchange, I mean, for you to express that, it really brings honor to my parents and my grandparents. So I just want to first start mahalo at that. Yeah. And all of me is only because of them. Mm. Um, so back on the ranch, back to the question. Um, hello, folks. Again, my name is Kuike Kamakea Ohelo. And um, I, I'd like to pride myself as a father more than anything else. But um, as Devin referred to, I am also known as a farmer. And um, the methodology that we apply in our farming practices um, is also known as, um, well, we borrow a lot from... Uh, Korean natural farming. Again, that's Korean natural farming. I myself am not of Korean descent, so I, I cannot call myself a Korean natural farmer. Therefore, we, you know, identify as Hawaiian natural farmers. <laughs> uh, over the years, um, we've realized, you know, through the research in depth in, into Korean natural farming that it runs parallel with Hawaiian agricultural practices, uh, traditional um, land tenure, and, you know, of course, our ahupua'a system that our kupuna left that um, leaves us, you know, leaves precedent for us to follow. Um, 
What was your question again, Devin? Well, no, I just uh, <laughs> where where does it come from? Because I think when when we first started speaking uh, on Clubhouse, right? And you said, "Oh, I'm I'm farming in in Maui," and we all went, "Oh, well, that's cool. What are you growing?" Or you know, Gorkalo and all this stuff. And I went, "Oh, that's all this great Hawaiian stuff he's growing." And he goes, "Yeah," and we use this the Korean this Korean method and uh, Korean natural method. And I went, "Wait, what?" Korean natural method, what is that? And as he explained it, we went, oh, wow. And so when he was talking about how parallel they run, um, I was just thinking, okay, how do you get started? Like the, the questions that come from just that basic thing that you said um, just expanded. And so I just went, okay, wait, wait. So how does this happen? How do you, how <laughs> well, do you even, get into even that? Even before because it explains it, it, it kind of, in my brain, it kind of makes sense because Korea does not have a large land mass either, right? So they have to be pretty efficient with their farming. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious to know. Well, number one, uh, did you, you grew up in Waimanalo, but were you always kind of in the, like your family's fr- uh, farming family and then you took over? Or was this something that you just had a passion for, so you just got into it? Um, well, mahalo for recognizing the place I call home. Um, growing up in Waimanalo, I was raised as a fisherman. Yeah, but um, being involved in Hawaiian immersion uh, and graduating from uh, Akikulo Samuel Manayakalani Kamakau, where it was a public lab um, based charter school, where you know the school itself could determine what the curriculum would be for their students. Um, it was really Aina based and cultural based. So from all of these, um, those early years, yeah, in developing in those early years, especially because in Hawaiian immersion at that time, um, our kumus, well, in every classroom, there was a kupuna, and they would always put us with kupuna. And I grew up my whole life yeah, sitting with, listening to, serving our kupuna. So because of that relationship that I was blessed with, you know, um, to be able to just be amongst my kupuna, um, I was able to absorb uh, a lot of this, the discussions around aloha aina, malama aina, whether it's mahi ai practices or fishing practices. So, again, I was raised a fisherman, and the story of how I became a farmer today was I used to work construction. Um, right out of high school, I got into the electrical field, became an electrician, moved to Maui, moved back, um, became a carpenter. And realized that the construction industry itself, I mean, there's a, there's a huge good side right? when you're making money, when you're super busy. But the downside to that is you exchange your health for it. Yeah, you exchange your health for it. So I um, hurt my back three times in the construction, uh, construction industry. And because half the year we wasn't working because we just worked like animals for the first half of the year. And my boss took vacations three times a year. <laughs> you know, um, there was a big downside. So quickly realizing that the largest bill that we had, um, or the largest expenditure that we had was on food. Because at that point in my family's uh, history, um, the siblings got together and paid off my mom's mortgage. Yeah, and then I just put on solar panels on the roof. So we never necessarily have an electric bill. And then the only thing left was um, because my keikis went to um, Kamehameha Preschool, which is only two blocks down in the homestead. We could walk them there. So we never had a gas bill. And the only bill we had was our cell phone bill and the food bill. 
So realizing quickly that, oh, well, in order to live sustainably, because in my mind at that young age, I was just like, oh, well, why not retire? No more bills. Why not retire? So let's take care and try to figure out how we can grow food. In addition to that, having, you know, being a new father as well, realize quickly how expensive Hawaiian cuisine is. So if you go to there and then you go try cater Hawaiian food, you know, the numbers you're going to probably get is 20 to $25 a head. Now, depends who you're catering with, that's 100% worth it. But if you come from a Hawaiian family that has a lot of people, a lot of family members or friends in, in your community, you're looking at a party, maybe 150 to sometimes I've seen and prepared food for up to 600 people. Now, 600 times $20, that's nowhere you know, in the affordable range. So quickly realizing that ah, there's a huge gap between our community and the aina that they stand or sit or live on, and that gap is because of the food that we're consuming is not necessarily from here. Yeah, because if, if we are what we eat and everything we eat it comes from, from a ship, from some distant land that we know nothing about, what do we really know about ourselves? So taking that approach and bringing it back in and then making the foods affordable, yeah, when it comes to Luau or whatever, um, for just a small community around me, I realized how much value we could actually bring on a lot of levels, you know, on a lot of levels, whether it's emotional levels, whether it's psychological levels, whether it's economical levels, whether it's just, you know, building relationship, the social equity, the social level. I mean, we can address a lot of things through simply the foods that we consume. So at that point in time, um, I was pumping out menus, like 11 course menus, for about 69 cents a head. Only because I made the commitment to take the sacrifice. Which means that the only thing that I take away is the ability to, to provide and bless other people. So 11 course meals, 69 cents a head, and people are thinking, whoa, like how, does, how the heck does he do that? Well, it's by farming the soil, and it goes back to Devin's question about the, the practice itself. By focusing on the biology and ho'omomoneing, or making fat, or making sweet the soil, as our kupuna would say. Yeah, the byproduct of that crip soil is crip food. Yeah, so we are able to grow in more abundance. We are able to grow in more volume because we take care and focus on the biology of the soil. So, I mean, I don't know who else today that can cater food even at five courses, less than a dollar a head. What, what kind of food does that include? Okay, you're talking about kalua pig yeah. because I was raising my own pigs. You're talking about chicken papaya because I get my own papaya trees. I get my own chickens. You're talking about chicken long rice, right? Because... At the same time, I'm doing producing all of these um, meats, all these produce. I'm also bartering and trading, so that keeps right, the the bottom line, which is the dollar, at a real minimal. So what the person is receiving in value, I mean, well, for the the price that they're paying, they're basically paying for their plate, their utensil, and their cup, and maybe the ice it takes to chill, the fish. Because that would just mean it takes a little bit longer for me in order to prepare for the meal 
just takes a little bit longer for me to go out of my way and to ensure that um, there's fish for the menu, there's chicken for the menu, pig for the menu, or even cow for the menu. Yeah, and then whatever produce that we'll be using in between as well. I mean, it literally only takes 21 days to grow a salad. If we want to eat salad for seven days a week, we, we will just plant, you know, three seeds every day for one week, and we will be able to provide a salad for a family of two, you know, three, four people for the whole week. But it's really just planning ahead. So looking at where we want to be, right, and then reverse engineering to where we are, and then figuring out the in-betweens of what we got to do to get where we want to go. We talked about like um, you applying the Korean farming technique to farming in Hawaii. What was the difference in, in, in Hawaii farming and Korean farming to you? The biggest difference that I've seen is the mentality of the people growing or farming. Um, in Korea, it's a very different culture. Yeah. Korea, I believe, is almost independent south korea and I'm, I'm talking about soccer is almost independent in the foods that they produce you know because um half the country is farms <laughs> so when you come back here in hawaii yeah we got to realize what the true uh, the the true statistics are which is you know 86 87 percent sometimes upwards of 96 97 percent of everything we consume in hawaii comes off of a ship so we're almost 100% dependent on somebody else to provide the food that we consume daily, weekly, monthly, annually. Yeah, so the biggest difference is the mentality of the people. In Korea, I mean, they, they get their staples. They get the base vegetables that they always use. In Hawaii, the majority of what we consume is European-centric. Cabbages, potatoes, yeah. Even the cabbages themselves, you need cold country to grow them. So, I mean, there's a huge difference, yeah? So we really need to revisit looking at culturally relevant foods. We know that Hawaii is the melting pot of diversity in the Pacific. Now, understanding what the majority of these cultures consume, I think if we planned ahead for feeding these cultures, yeah, we, we, we would be less dependent on everything coming in. And then the mentality would start to change, like I said earlier. And if we don't, if we're not all in agreement, then just correct me. But if we are what we eat, I mean, we really got to figure out and determine what we want to be. You know, what our children want to be. Because if everything we're eating, again, comes off of a ship from some Aina air, from some land, distant land that we know nothing about, who produced it, how they produced it, where they produced it, then what do we really know about ourselves? Yeah. Koreans know where the produce coming from. In Hawaii, nine times out of ten, ten times out of ten most times, I asked somebody, hey, where did your last meal come from? They said, oh, Royce. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, does, does, does the chef or does the cook know where these ingredients come from? And I've had discussions with, you know, some executive chefs. And, you know, half the time, they're pretty clueless to where their, their stuff comes from. And I, then the question, the follow-up question for me is, okay, well, if you do know where it comes from, do you know how it was grown? Because if we would have the perspective that food is our first medicine, because that's, that is what con con constantly feeds us daily, it's our daily bread, 
Yeah, if food is our first medicine, we cannot grow medicine with poison. We cannot. We can no longer accept that as the standard. And that's why I, you know, we are trying to steer, you know, our people back to, you know, relinking them back to the aina through natural processes and methodologies that, again, provide sustenance for the mass. So, so to get back, I, I, I get so you. Um, I agree. By the way, construction is tough, and <laughs> I, I, I know, like, um, you know, construction is something that, uh, yeah, I know I could never do just because even just painting wears me out you know so I, I see these guys carrying these like big bricks and stuff and i'm just like dude this is something i could just never do myself you know your body isn't made for construction yeah my body's not made for construction. <laughs> so, you know but so you you get to this point in your life and uh that's actually pretty insightful that you look at your finances and you see like okay well my biggest expense is food how can i um and so you get into farming but was it where did the Korean style farming, and by the way, I'd like to know what the Korean style farming entails. That's the next section, I think. But the idea, how did that you stumble across that? Or did you start doing regular farming and then you, you came across this method and then switched? Or was it something you kind of found out about and then that was what, what gave the impetus to get started in farming just in general? So um, I've been privileged enough to be around long-time Kahlo farmers that they just buy the bag from the store, got numbers on the bag, they just throw it in the soil and till it in, and then they harvest from that field. Now, that's how I grew up watching all of these, you know, all of these things happen. As I became a young adult, realizing, again, we are what we eat, and then questioning, well, what exactly are those little pellets <laughs> that they're throwing down? And then doing research into that and realizing where does that industry come or stem from? Yeah. So if we want to get into the short history of Korean natural farming in Hawaii, then we first got to take a look at the long history of chemical farming in Hawaii. Yeah. Now, the chemical farming period across the world stems from the Holocaust. Because when the world determined that it was not a porno thing, right, to, to, you know, do chemical tests on humans, that industry shut down. And the same German companies that would create these gases, create these poisons that was it just eliminating people by the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, yeah, is the same chemical corporations and companies from Germany that would pivot and create the chemical foods for all of agriculture. When you say chemical foods, are you talking about fertilizer or are you talking about... 100% just talking about fertilizer. Okay, okay. So almost all of the fertilizer, the formulas of these fertilizers were derived from a lab that stemmed from the same research, you know, biological research um, from the Holocaust. They just switched the formulas up because they went from that to pest management, uh-huh. right, from poisoning humans to poisoning pests or animals to keep the you know the crops alive so out of nowhere it just expanded globally now now we we also got to understand the timeline in the early 1920s right um, there was no food you know so we got to understand the need for growth and i get it i totally get it but is that the best option for us today so when you talk about fertilizer i'm stupid when it comes to farming yeah so I like to learn know the difference with fertilizer versus pesticides. In, in is that the, is that to you the same thing or 
does it have a different definition as far as using it to grow food? Personally, and this is my personal opinion alone, if it's synthetic and it's created in a lab, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Now, do I have that in my diet today? I'm going to be very transparent and say yes, because there's no way for me to get around not consuming what's on the shelf in the store. And that's part of the reason why I do what I do every day. But back to the natural farming method, um, this method was created by Master Hankyu Cho. Yeah, Cho Hankyu. Um, he's been a lifetime farmer. And he was around when chemical farming just hit Korea. So instead of surrendering to these you know, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicide, he in his heart yeah, made it his life's mission to keep things natural. By doing so, by making that choice, he traveled the surrounding Asian countries and took the best of the best of the natural, natural world or the natural technology or these natural sciences, put them all together in, in a methodology that he coined as um, Korean natural farming, which focuses and emphasizes on the indigenous microorganisms or biology, yeah, and then multiplying them, making them stronger, making sure they get food, and then they in turn create the, the space, the, you know, the lovable, the loving growing space around them, which in turn translates into natural grown food. So just a little bit of context, we got to understand that plants and trees spend all day in this process called photosynthesis. Yeah? They take the energy from the atmosphere, um, from the sun's rays, and then they just convert all of that energy down into sugars and starches which they barter and trade at the tips of their roots as the tips of their leaves with the biology or microorganisms around them yeah, for food. So plants and trees don't mind their own food. The microbes around them do. That's why when you see like, you know, a wasteland, a, you know, a barren land, it's because no more water and no more environment for microorganisms to thrive. Because of that, no more light, I mean, no more plants, no more trees. You guys ever seen the the movie Biggest Little Farm? Mm. Oh, it's on. Um, you yeah. saw that on Amazon. Yeah. It's such a good. It, well, it's it's good. I, I showed it to my kids because it's about this couple who uh, starts a natural farm in California, yeah. and the dirt is all dead, you know. And this uh, this guy comes in and he kind of explains to them how to manage the farm without pesticides and all. And they run into all kind of problems because, you know, it's not. It's not easy, right? I mean, there's a there's a cycle to it, and then but by the end they kind of they get into this rhythm with uh, the environment and all that stuff, and the dirt is all fertile now and all that. Stuff. But they took a completely dead, barren land and made it into something. So there is definitely something to that. Um, and there is hope then that things can reverse well, on this island. Exactly, where there's life, there's life. Period. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and that I mean, those guys. You know, the the biggest little farm guys, I mean, they, they were definitely an inspiration. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and proof of concept that it can happen at a small scale. And that was my biggest goal for my house, was to be a green dot in our community that, you know, could serve as not only um, an educational place to realize and learn, come to the understanding that we can do it ourselves, but to just pump out naturally grown, wholesome foods 
that people will feel better after they consume it and leave you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. as a proof of concept those guys are truly an inspiration well it's it's kind of interesting that you could do it here because what, what i what, what you know all the animals kind of had to interact together to make this thing work but we don't have some of those animals here so as i'm watching this movie i'm thinking you oh, gotta could, buy a pair it, cheap well i'm like can this work in hoi yeah. like we don't have wolves or owls or uh-huh. you know these kind of animals that they have up there kind of stuff but but you're saying it can't 100 percent. so the biggest selling point for me on korean natural farming and if you have a little bit more time i'll go dive a little bit into how i got to korean natural farming okay 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 so i was um i didn't want to go the chemical route at my house why is because we've never grown with chemicals before and i was in my mind i was like well i'm gonna go gun after i'm gonna shoot after the organic certification in order for that to happen, according to the USDA, the land that you farm or the plot that you're farming needs to be f- clear of chemicals for three years. So we already had that. The only the next step was saving up in, enough money to apply f- for the application. Okay, so that was my intention was to stay away, steer away from any of the you know the old chemical usage practices. So in doing so, um, naturally, because Kalua pigs on the menu. I realized that I had to go and raise pigs in, in order to bring that value to the customer. So I had to go raise pigs. So the hook for me in Korean natural farming was this man by the name of Mike DuPont. And he was um, an extension agent for UH on the livestock side. And he and a few others, pioneers in Korean natural farming in Hawaii, yeah, went and brought this technology that KNF or Korean natural farming provides, which is an odorless and um, flyless piggery. Now, if you if you lived in this valley 40 years ago, 50 years ago, they had piggeries in the back here, you know, just like all the other valleys all the way down to Kalama. If you drive past one piggery, you know. Yeah. Within the mile of the piggery, you know, how they used to farm pigs old school, wash down, you know that you're in the area of one pig farm. Now, with this technology, uh, this natural technology that emphasizes the, you know, the growth and um, just creating the house and the space for these organisms, these microorganisms, these indigenous microorganisms, yeah, there's no smell. There's also no flies if you do it correctly. So... You, in essence, you're talking about clean pigs. Like, yeah. In a clean environment. I mean, and from my experience, pigs are the cleanest animals. Yeah. But when you go to a pig farm, in my head, that's the, that's the most dirtiest Correct. Thing. Because, you know, it's, it's, the hu- it's the living conditions that the human created or that the farming created. Because they emphasize and focus on the bottom line, which is a fast turnaround and money, yeah, they only create these small little pens, maybe the size of this table, Two tables for one mama and her 13 pigs you know so because they're forced to live in these environments you know um, we end up with those results so taking a step away from that that kind of perspective and making the emphasis on the how the pigs live and their quality of life versus the bottom line or oh, I'll only get this garage I can only fit if I maximize everything I can put 50 pigs inside but if I really take my time I just put 10 pigs inside and elevate the quality of life. Therefore, the pig's more happy. Therefore, the pig's more clean. Therefore, you know, it's a more natural environment. The pigs, you know, if you watch them in the wild, I mean, they're not 
kind of animals that you can confine in a particular place. Yeah, they like to go graze. They like to go check this out. They're social beings. So creating that space, you know, it's more natural for the pigs, which means they're more happy. Again, the, the, the product, the quality of the product is hard to beat. It's second to none. Yeah, I've seen pigs, personally experienced pigs who are farmed naturally, yeah, sell for $11, $12 a pound. Now, that's prime rib prices. Yeah. Why? It's because the meat is super clean, it's super tender, and no more hormones, no more vaccines. Because when you farm pigs yeah, at, at scale, they all got to be vaccinated. They all, they all need hormones. That's just the, the current USDA practice. So you know your um, family farm in Wamanalo? I, I, I just live on a homestead, and it's okay. actually our house with our yard. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but your your family before that practiced that that tradition of keeping the soil clean and stuff, or did did they did they you know was old school back in the day, and you had to take over and try to clean up the so soil? How did that work? The fact is, my my grandpa was a chicken fighter. Okay. Okay. <laughs> my grandpa was a chicken like fighter. Like many grandpas. Right. Right. <laughs> he, you're right. He, he was chicken George. They know him as Chicken George. But um, growing up. My family had 55 people living in the same home, four-bedroom home. Yeah, all of my grandpa's children and their gran- their children, you know, that's just how it was back in the day. Because, you know, jobs are s- scarcity or even jobs that can afford the living back then, 40 years ago, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't a dime a dozen. <laughs> so because of our living circumstances, I mean, we were always forced to eat as a community. Yeah, big pots. One pot for everybody. Um, we, also, we had other animals in our yard and the neighbor next door and the neighbor next door, they had pigs, they had geese, they had cows as well. So, you know, we, we grew up in um, a very subsistent style of living. Yeah, so but I did not necessarily learn from my grandparents on um, too much about the way I farm today, mm-hmm. but I learned from other kupuna. I yeah. see. Now, so maybe you can walk us through the difference between Korean natural farming versus standard farming. Maybe give us a couple of examples, because in my in my head I can't. I, you know, I, do you know Paul Isaac? I yeah I do. Yeah, so I know Paul's back there doing his thing and everything. I know of Paul Isaac. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I've walked around there. and So what would be different from like a standard farm like his? Maybe you guys are growing different stuff, but like that versus the Korean natural farming style. Yeah. Um, some standard farms. Now, I haven't visited them all, so I can't speak on all okay. of them. Yeah, sure. But um, friends that I, I, I do have that um, practice, you know, the old conventional way of farming. Um the focus is not necessarily on the biology. The focus is on just feeding the plants. Oh, I see. I Correct. See. So, so using whatever means necessary to grow the fastest and the, the, uh, yeah. the most. It's I all see. about meeting the market. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Uh-huh. And versus our approach in natural farming, yeah, is we focus on the biology because one of the philosophies that we apply. Is the visible is a direct result of the invisible. For instance, yeah, if we go into work one day and we see a co-worker is sobbing, crying in the corner, 
then what we can determine just off of that information is, oh, something happened prior to this. We may not know the details, but what we know is this person is hurting. So then we take that philosophy and we apply it to farming, right? Um, understanding that the visible is a direct result of the invisible. What we manipulate that's invisible going to determine what is visible. So by feeding and nurturing the biology or the indigenous microorganisms, whether it's through regen uh, regenerative farming practices by focusing on compost or um, just going up Malka and collecting um, the indigenous microorganisms in the forest and bringing them down to where we're growing and propagating them. Yeah, it's really about focusing on those biologies. Mm, I see. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, if you it, need it more does. examples, then just let me know. No, I see what you're saying. So it's not a lot of, yeah, so it's not like you're going to go get Roundup and shoot it on, on the weeds and stuff. You're going to do things. To I have the weeds in the first place. Well, well, and it, it's also the mindset. Like I said earlier, the mindset. Yeah. Who told you those are weeds? Mm. Mm. Now, if we understand a lot of the weeds that we see, that are fast growing, we call them pioneer weeds, right? They're reacting to the sun and the exposure of the soil yeah, to the sun. You know, their kuleana or their job is to cover the earth. Because when we rip the soil and the sun rays touches it, the UV rays touches it, immediately, almost instantaneously, 50% of all biology ceases to exist. It just burns. So the, the weeds that we know of, yeah, their responsibility is to cover the earth to protect that biology. But being able to see, right, what is not being seen, we can prevent that from happening by taking extra steps or extra measures to make sure that when we rip the soil, if we need to, that it, it's at a certain time of day and that we also following up and covering it so we don't kill off the biology. And if that ever happens, then being able to mitigate the problem with a solution by introducing more biology on the back end. So it's really a mindset thing. Yeah, it's really a perception kind of thing. It, it, speaking of perception, you know, like when I go to Foodland or Whole Foods, and go to the vegetable section. There's a big difference between organic and farm-raised vegetables and fruits as compared to the regular ones. Yeah. How do you, how do you as a farmer um, figure out a way to make it more affordable than more expensive? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you asked that. Now let's let's segue a little bit, and I'll get right back to yeah. that. Segue a little bit, and just talk about the foundation or the starting of the organic food movement. Okay, because my goal is to establish or help establish. I don't need to be the one, but as long as I see, right, we see this happens, this comes to fruition, no pun intended, yeah, um, it needs to happen. So I'm pushing, we're pushing for a natural food movement. So in our stores, locally, you know, globally, we can have a section of fruits and vegetables and produce that was grown naturally. Now, the organic food movement started in California with a family, I believe, of 20 different families in a small community that had, they had like a Safeway, yeah, and they were just being fed, you know, conventionally grown fruits and vegetables, and they were tired of it. So they demanded that the store, right, opened up a small section that their local farmers who produce organic goods, organic produce, could place their goods. Now it's a worldwide movement. That's one step closer 
back to the soil, back to being natural, one step further, one step away from the conventional farming. That way we can create diversity for our people. Now back to the question. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> Making up the difference between the naturally grown stuff, or the organically grown stuff versus stuff that you can buy, you know, that's commercially grown. So, so how, how we can make it more affordable? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. So I belong to, I'm a part of a company. Um, that we are a diversified agricultural company, meaning that we grow food as well as medicine. And in our minds, yeah, in our um, short-term, long-term, micro and macro picture, we understand that the organic foods on the shelf is not affordable. I went almost, I tried to go almost a year, plant-based, didn't make it because I couldn't afford the freaking food. Because, <laughs> you know, so anyways, how do we make it affordable? Well, we got to look at the macro picture, yeah? And we got to understand, again, what are the greatest foods being produced in Hawaii? One, who's producing them? Two, and how they're producing them. Now, when it comes to growing things naturally, nobody's at scale, period. Nobody's at scale. We're trying to get there. We're striving to get there. But how do we make food affordable? Bottom line is, all the cheap food that we see in the stores, the most cheapest of foods are subsidized by the federal government. And, and if they're not only subsidized by the federal government, they're also subsidized by their state government, wherever the food comes from. In Hawaii, that doesn't exist at all. So how do we make food affordable in Hawaii? Well, the, the truth is the government got to care. The government has to care. Yeah, now I've seen efforts and I mahalo our leaders, you know, in the House as well as the Senate at the state level. I mahalo them for trying, but their execution fell short by 100 miles. Yeah, if we look at the, the whole budget for the Department of Ag in the state, yeah, they get maybe about just under 4% of the entire budget for the state. Of that 4%, less than 10% is actually allocated to the production of food. 90% of that 3%, 3.6%, I believe, is allocated to landscaping. All the trees, all the shrubs that we see, right? It's geared towards tourism, looking good. It's not geared towards feeling good and the wellness of our people. So bottom line is, if you want to make food affordable, you either got to grow it yourself or government got to care enough about you. And quite frankly, the less we have these discussions around food that's being produced or not being produced, foods that are being consumed and not being produced here with our state leaders, with our county leaders, not, you know, they don't see it as a priority. Does so that, does that go for fisheries too in Hawaii? A hundred percent. Who determines the market price for ahi? Kyle and I have had long conversations about our, our fish stock and, you know, uh, I know climate change is a big deal and we talk about that a lot, but, I, you know, we go to the beach all the time, go fishing, and it just saddens me to see, like, nothing out there, you know, and nobody does anything about it, which is, it's right here. It's not, it's not a, you know, it's not like, oh, this is something that's going to affect everybody. I mean, it's, it's like, it's that it's instant and it's right in front of our face and yeah. we don't do anything. You know, about I, I came across an article just recently and it was a old article on Mauna Loa Bay and how the Mauna Loa Bay 
organization or whoever they were, were concerned about overfishing in Mauna Loa Bay, and that being the reason of not having fish. That's not the reason to me. I go there a lot, and I hang out there a lot. They're right. There is no, not a lot of fish anymore there. But then when I go there, what do I see? I see jet skis churning up the water, <laughs> you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It's recreational stuff that they don't want to address because it's money for tourism. And, and at some micro scale, that's climate change. Because the climate of the fish's environment, because when we talk about climate change, we're only talking about the human perspective. Now, the fish, the crabs, the eels, they're all organisms as well. When, imagine, yeah, when helicopter, you just buy the house next door, when helicopter swooping down three times in afternoon, yeah, as 50 feet above your home. You don't want to live there anymore. You don't want to live there anymore. Exactly. So it's really just like agriculture. When people ask me, oh, what's the biggest pest? I tell them humans. Yeah. It's straight up humans, yeah? yeah. It's And quite frankly, you know, sometimes we're doing it to ourselves, but if you look at the big picture, we're not. It's a lot of the Malihini that are doing that because we were taught, I mean, I mean in my culture, in Hawaiian culture, our culture, yeah, is that you know shit where you eat. Uh, you got a malama. Uh, and calamai for my French, but, yeah, yeah. you know, I just got to understand that, Yeah. And the other follow-up to what I wanted to share with you is we were, the, the company that I work for and represent, um, I'm just going to plug their name in. Uh, yeah, sure. It's yeah. Maui Third Wave. <laughs> so find us on social media. Actually, we're absent on social media right now, but we will be present. <laughs> so if you, if you so Google Maui Third Wave. Maui Third Wave. Yeah, okay. so it's, it's a company that I, I work for. Um, so we trying to figure out how do we subsidize the food and how do we enable yeah, or empower our people or farmers to live, you know, to live freely, basically, yeah, to afford to live in Hawaii. We went pivot and became one of the first industrial hemp, licensed industrial hemp producers in Hawaii um, as of November 2020. Um, so that's part of our overall arching plan is whether it's to produce textiles, um, fabrics or um, medicine through oils or just a consumption of flowers, um, whatever the industry brings yeah, is just making sure that a local company is in the front runner seat yeah, and holding the door open for the rest of us because the cannabis and the hemp industry yeah, it's only going to grow um, upwards. I mean, last year, 2020, I think they did 22 billion in America. I mean, what percentage of that do we want for our people in Hawaii? We so got the land to make the best. We ones. have the land, we have the environment, we have the resources, and we have the labor. Yeah. Right? What's the unemployment rate? Um, the kind of what you call that number right now? You know, what about during COVID? Yeah. So for us, is reestablishing another leg that our state can stand on yeah so we're not entirely dependent on tourism or military yeah what else do we have now do you think we could be how sustainable do you think we could be uh if if we really got into this and and wanted to do production here as far as um farming and and doing that stuff and talking about the next pineapple and sugarcane what was that? Well, well, I mean, well, so I think I think what COVID taught us this go around is that if uh, something happens globally, and um, 
we the ships can't come here we're, we're kind of screwed yeah right so it's just a matter of like what can we do to can we be sustainable without having ships coming in and and would it be like um everybody got to grow stuff in their backyard or is there enough land here that there's enough farmers that could provide is there is there enough is there enough here that we could do it because you know the island's pretty populated well this island for sure but um even if it was just neighbor islands and stuff doing farming i mean would be we be able to sustain ourselves or would we always be kind of dependent on all this stuff coming in so my answer is always 100 percent heck yes we will be able to sustain ourselves (laughs) And, for, you know, it's super cliche to say, but this is the, you know, the bee's knees. is for every dollar we spend in the store, we cast a vote. Yeah. For every dollar we spend in the store, we cast a vote and we tell our leaders up, up on Capitol Hill, this is exactly what we want because we're buying more of it. So it starts with that. But in order for us to become sustainable, we need some radical people who are super hard head, who are willing to go against the grain and challenge the system. Bottom line, we have all the land that we need that's currently still being converted into more suburbs. We're taking prime ag land that's been in ag since its, its existence within the state you know, system, turning it into more suburbs. Now, the more telephone poles we plant than trees, of course, we're gonna be more dependent. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily gonna be limited to um, people just planting in their backyard, but that's definitely where the movement can start. Yeah, it's really just demanding more from our leadership and understanding what that is. Because currently everybody's distracted; their attention is not on that. Their attention's on rail. Their attention's on other things. Yeah, like we we blaming like it's just everybody blaming everybody else, throwing everybody under the bus. Until we start to take responsibility for ourselves and where we spend our money, where we, where we cast our votes, yeah, nothing going to change. And I'm, I'm not talking about just voting leadership into position. I'm talking about holding them accountable, who's ever there already. You know, and understanding what do we want as a people? Are we okay with that system? Because like you said earlier, John, we're only one natural disaster away from starving. Currently... In San Francisco, outside of Oakland Bay, there's 39 container ships that hasn't been able to enter port since the Evergreen went blocked the canal in mm. Egypt. Mm-hmm. 39 container ships currently sit outside of the harbor because of political distress, whatever the reason is. Yeah. So California right now is food insecure. Being a large food producer themselves, are food insecure, meaning that there's stuff on the shelves that cannot be replaced or replenished because it's sitting on the ships. Wow. Now, if that's California, and they control the USDA in Hawaii because that's the last port that it leaves to reach us, then we are more food insecure than they are. And I don't know what the measurements are, right? But I'm telling you. So we could be screwed as we talk. No. It's not about future. It's like it's now. Not. It's happening now. Understanding COVID and having 4,400 families wait outside the stadium for a box of food. Yeah. Crying when they reach the front of the line because the food never run out. I mean, those are our neighbors. Yeah. Those are our relatives, you know. But we don't see it because we're not in Salt Lake when that happens. We're not in IL when that happens. Yeah. 
But every household in Hawaii, I don't care if you up on that ridge over there, you know, if you're up in Pacific Palisades, or if you're down in Waikiki, yeah, we all get our food from the same broken system that has been convincing us that we're 100% okay for generations. Well, it's interesting because it's not, it's not just food. I mean, this is a global problem. I mean, right now, like, oh, so I'm, I'm in real estate and you're talking about can't get lumber, can't get uh, drywall, you know, because all of the production shut down with COVID and everybody's buying up what's left and it's just, it's a, it's a mess. So like, yeah, it's a very interesting, um, yeah, you could, we could go, go deep into it, you know, yeah. but right now we're not because we're going to do it. You see, you see why I brought it one. Yeah, right? yeah, sure, sure, sure. Because it's just like, okay, go get them. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome, brother. Thank you. So, oh, uh, we have because it's a because it was, we're a music based podcast. Technically, technically, we have to ask you a music question. Yeah. So the music question is, uh, what did you say? Rocket ship going into space? <laughs> no, let's we, make, we're, let's doing, we're doing diet. We're doing let's, desert. Let's make it more um, natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so you have to live in a um, a house. <laughs> And it's around you with no Wi-Fi. Yeah, there's no, there's no way you can one, get outside influence. Yeah, one plug, and you had plugged in a, um, <laughs> a, a, a record player. Okay. 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 What would be the three albums you bring with you to that house? Three albums. Yeah. Oh, anything from the Pahinuis. Okay. okay. Anything from Bob Marley. Okay. And anything from Carole King. Oh wow! Wow, we'll get a lot of okay, Carol nice. Kings on this thing. Yeah. He's deep. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, Kuike, we're gonna take a short break. Uh, we'll come back on our Patreon. I had this thought. So this is <laughs> this is my Patreon discussion today. Okay. I was brushing my teeth and I thought about this. <laughs> oh no! I, I want everybody to think about. It. So, I was thinking that um, our body runs at a certain temperature, mm-hmm. right? And for millions and millions of years that humans have existed basically we ate our food raw right whatever we got we would just eat but why is it now at this time in history that food only tastes good if it's hot like we cook it and we heat it up or if it's cold like we freeze it but there's not a lot of like lukewarm food that you crave like you crave it when it's hot or when it's cold but technically it's like wouldn't your body just want <laughs> Wouldn't your body just want to crave something that's the same temperature? Because then you, you're trying to get the nutrients well, in your body, not, right? You're leaving out the fact that sushi is, is not included in Okay, that. But, but I'm talking about spaghetti, pizza, ice cream. Yeah, you don't open up a can of spaghetti and go, this is perfect, and just eat it up. Right, 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 right. Oh, okay, that's that's all European-centric. Okay, okay, wait, 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 hold, hold, your, hold your answer, hold your answer. Because we're going to do that on the Patreon. <laughs> uh, we want people to tune in for the Patreon part. You know. So we're going to talk it's about uh, that. Uh, a little bit and then we'll go to other topics apparently <laughs> because Devin doesn't like my topic because <laughs> <laughs> right, so we'll is going to answer it in like five seconds alright alright all right. we'll, we'll say bye to you now and we'll come back okay, in a little bit see you later future. see you later <laughs>